Uh, we last week worked through chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 5 uh, is my favorite book in the entire Bible. So if you weren't here, I'm sorry you missed the greatest service that's ever been hosted in this room. Uh, but I'm sure it's the same on YouTube, so you can catch up there. Uh, this week we're going to be covering another two chapters in the book of Revelation. Here we go for chapter 6 and chapter 7. Uh, I'd love to just give you a little bit of context before we head in, because I just got to be honest with you, if you thought it was weird and difficult thus far, you ain't seen nothing yet, because this is where it really starts to get a little harder to suss out, and a little more awkward, and a little more weird, uh, and so we're going to hopefully get some handlebars to understand what's going on as we work our way through it. The first thing I'm going to draw your attention to is actually a book that's available over in the bookstore. Uh, Aaron Bauer, who was just playing Keys, who manages and oversees, the he's the pastor who manages and oversees the commons and the bookstore over there, asked what would be a great resource if people wanted to read some more on Revelation. Uh, and we settled on Nancy Guthrie's book called Blessed, Experiencing the Promise of the Book of Revelation. Uh, and I just want to read you a couple things that I think are helpful out of this book. You can pick it up in the... Uh, commons after service if you'd like. This is what she says. The number seven is especially important uh, in Revelation. It's used 53 times. So we shouldn't be surprised that another way the book can be organized is in a seven sets of seven. This kind of cycle image. This actually comes out of another commentary by Craig Coaster called uh, Revelation and the End of All Things. Uh, Nancy says this, instead of reading Revelation as a chronological depiction of events, meaning things that follow each other one step at a time from A to Z through the entire story, uh, it helps to recognize that John brings us to the end of history repeatedly in the book and then starts over again, showing us the same period of time from a different angle. And that's already been happening. I haven't drawn your attention to it, but it really begins to happen today as we head into the opening of the seals that we talked about last week, the seals that are on the scroll of how history is going to play out. And then at the end, uh, not to give you too much of a spoiler here, but there's a giant cliffhanger where John leaves us hanging. When it all builds in tension towards where it's going and how is God going to resolve it, he leaves us hanging right there. And then he takes us on another run-through for redemptive history as we work our way through the book. I'm sure you were expecting me to talk about the Titanic because it is very applicable to the book of Revelation. Uh, that's not an actual picture, not to spoil it for you. That comes from a famous movie you may have heard of. But the Titanic uh, is part of my family's legend. Every family has legends in their history, things, stories that brought history together to where it is today. And our family's history includes the Titanic because my grandfather's mother, as a young girl, and her family lived in Norway. And when they were immigrating to the United States, uh, they had booked tickets on the Titanic for its fateful voyage. Uh, and the story goes that one of their siblings got sick with mumps or measles or one of those diseases that doesn't really exist anymore, uh, and they were very ill, and so they had to postpone their trip, and they didn't get on the boat, which ends up hitting an iceberg. Uh, sorry if I ruined the movie for you, but that's what happened. Um, the boat is sailing across the North Atlantic from England to New York when it runs into an iceberg in the middle of the night. Uh, and as the radio call for SOS went out and that we need help, reporters began to show up at the offices of the company who oversaw the shipping lanes and the uh, passenger, uh, whatever you call that, that they do with these big boats. And they get Philip Franklin on the line. Philip is the vice president of White 
Star Line, which is the company that owns the Titanic, and they say, this is a big deal. We heard they hit an iceberg. What's going to happen? And he says very confidently, there is no danger that the Titanic will sink. The boat is unsinkable, and nothing but inconvenience will be suffered by the passengers. Now, you probably could guess that this happened very early on in the, because uh, there's other quotes from him as this goes on, and he starts to get more and more alarmed as it happens. The reality is that the people that were on the Titanic were told, as part of the sales pitch, this thing is unsinkable. You can get on board and you will be safe. Yes, it's a dangerous journey to make it, but don't worry, this is the safest, most impregnable uh, ship that the world has ever seen, and you will never have an issue. Even when it ran into an iceberg, the attitude of the people who own the ship is, no worry, unsinkable, it'll just be a minor inconvenience. Thousands of people drowned because of that attitude. Now, you're probably wondering, why are you talking about the Titanic? Uh, I think what John is doing for us today, as he begins to open the seals of the scroll, is he is asking the question of those people who live in the Roman Empire and treat the Roman Empire like people treated the Titanic. It was unsinkable. It was undefeatable. It was a champion that would rule over the world for all of human history. It could never be defeated. I think the question John is asking is, are you sure? Are you sure that the empire can provide what it claims? Are you sure that the protection that the empire offers you is real? Are you sure that the sacrifices that the empire is asking you to make on its behalf will actually pay off for you in the end? And it begins by introducing us to an idea that is probably one of the most famous. If you ask people even who don't know about the book of Revelation, what do you know about it? One of the things they'll talk about is what we hear about today. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, or as I like to call them, icebergs for empires. So we're going to look at how these seals that are opened serve as icebergs in the way of an empire that claims to be unsinkable. The horsemen... Uh, are going to get rolled out. Each one of the first four seals are represented by a horse. It's almost certainly a reference to the prophet Zechariah. We've talked about that Old Testament prophets and the stories of Israel are our keys to understanding where we're going. In Zechariah, if you, if you know, are familiar with Zechariah's story, the people of Israel were enslaved and carried off in exile to Babylon. And for 70 years, they were living in captivity in this country. And the prophets continually said, God is coming and he's going to rescue you. And eventually the Persian Empire comes to power, defeats the Babylonians, and sends the Jews back home. And lest those people begin to trust in the Persian Empire as being the one who will deliver them eternally, he says, just wait. There's more conquest and more defeat coming. And history tells us that's true. Eventually, Alexander the Great and the Greeks rise to power and they overthrow the Persians and eventually the Romans come to power and eventually Rome itself falls. Zechariah says this, I looked up again and before me were four chariots coming out between the two mountains. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled or pale is actually the way that word is translated in Revelation today. All of them were powerful. Zechariah uses this image of horses and chariots to represent nations that would come to topple the powers that claim to rule the world. 
And this morning, as we begin to open the seals, if you remember last week, we were left with a little bit of a cliffhanger last week as God himself has the scroll that will roll out the history of how everything will come to fruition in the end, but it's sealed with seven seals. And the question is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll to break the seals? And the answer is Jesus, the lamb who was slain. And today... We get to see what happens when these things begin to open. The seals begin to open. And seal number one, iceberg number one, the horse and his rider bring conquest and defeat. You can follow along with us in your text if you want. Most of the key uh, text will be on the screen. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 6. And we're starting here in verse 1. John says, I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked. He hears and he sees. And before me was a white horse, and its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, right away, we are invited to try to interpret what does this mean? Who is this rider? What is he doing? Uh, And there is a variety of ways to interpret this. One of the most popular ones is to say, oh, this is Jesus. And the reason people would say that is because later, towards the end of the book, Jesus does show up in a white horse as a conquering hero. I would disagree with that interpretation, mostly because I think What John is saying is that this idea of conquest coming in war is something that happens all throughout human history and Jesus will be the ultimate conqueror at the end. So they're in the same theme, but it's not the same character. Why do I think that? I want to introduce to you to uh, something you may be familiar with. Um, I got to be honest, when I started studying Revelation, I didn't know much about the Parthian Empire. The Parthian Empire was a major empire that uh, was in power for about 500 years. John, in the time he's writing Revelation, is smack dab in the middle of their power. The Parthian Empire does not get as much press because Rome stuck around a lot longer and they had better, uh, you know, media people, I guess. I don't know. We never hear about the Parthian Empire. The Parthian Empire, uh, just to help you with the geography, uh, here is a boot. Uh, That's Italy. I don't know how bad we are at geography, so I'm trying to help. Uh, Rome is right there in the middle. And then over here is Ephesus, where I'm pointing. That's where John is at the church, writing this letter. And all of these churches are in this area right here. And as you can see, it's not too far away that the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire run into each other. And over the course of about 150 years, there's repeated battles on the front of that border between the two that keeps Rome from ever expanding its empire further to the east because this empire is there fighting them constantly and they have a secret weapon and their secret weapon is this guy who's really cool actually that's a modern picture of a guy who's a champion they practice this thing it's called the Parthian shot just to read it to you, it says it's a light cavalry, cav- cavalry hit-and-run tactic made famous by the Parthians, an ancient Iranian people. While performing a real or feigned retreat at full gallop, the horse archers would turn their bodies back to shoot at the pursuing enemy. 
This was such a famous military tactic that today they still hold world championships where they practice this uh, event. And this guy is the, I think, current world champion. He's also a little bit of a show-off because if you notice, I think it's a little unnecessary that he has this uh, behind his head. But hey, he's got a little flair. I like that. So what did this look like? They, this army would come up to the Roman legion and they would begin an attack on the military and then they would act as if they were terrified and they would begin to race away on their horses, which would cause the legion of army soldiers from Rome to begin to chase after them and spread out across the land and then they would turn and begin to fire their arrows on them as they were racing away. There's a famous story from, I think it's 53 BC, so you're talking probably 125 years before John's writing this letter, where seven legions of Roman soldiers were murdered in the desert by these guys on their horses with their bows. There was constant nervousness if you lived on the frontier that was closest to them, that at any day they could come racing across the land and take over where you lived. So when we read that the first rider comes and he's riding a horse and he has a bow and he's given a crown and he comes bent on conquest, I think specifically John is saying, Rome promises that they will last forever and never be defeated. And yet, right here on our front doorstep is an enemy that is constantly threatening to overrun them. They can't even defeat these guys on their horses. How can they be all-powerful? Are you so sure that what they're promising is the real deal. Now, helpful for us, we don't have these guys racing around, but the reality is that conquest is always waiting right around the corner. Every empire that's ever been on the earth, every world power has always been nervous about what the next challenger will be. If you're a modern American living right now and you start asking people, what are you nervous about? If you well, let's just go do it this way. If you were living in 1970 or 80, everyone would have said, Russia, the USSR, they're right there, they're going to fight us. If you ask somebody now, they're going to say, I know, you want to say China, it's China. Everybody, oh, China, they're the big one. This is the reality. Every empire, no matter how powerful, how big, how economically wealthy, is always worried about the next empire that will come to power and overthrow them. Because they do not have ultimate power to deliver you from their enemies. Next up, Iceberg 2, we continue. The horse and rider bring violence and bloodshed. We're continuing in Revelation chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And then another horse came out. This is a fiery red one. And its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. I think in this scenario, John chooses the word peace very specifically because Rome would talk all the time about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Their entire propaganda system was built around the idea that if you submitted yourself to the empire, it would bring peace and that you would have prosperity and you would be able to live a good life in the empire. And what John challenges is, challenges the people who are receiving the letter to think about is, is it really so peaceful to live in the empire? 
Is it really the kind of place that you want to live within? Because what I see is power to make people kill each other. And then you go, well, how does that work out? Here's a few examples. The siege of Jerusalem uh, happened from the mid-60s till the mid-70s, culminating right in the middle at 70 AD when the siege of Jerusalem happens. According to the historian Josephus, who lived at this time, Jerusalem was utterly destroyed during the war. The temple was torn to the ground, started on fire, and 1.1 million people were murdered in Israel. And another 100,000 were taken off into captivity and slavery. When John says they were given the power to bring peace and what they actually brought was war, I think he's talking about this very thing. They claim that they will bring you peace and that they will bring you freedom and what they actually bring is death and destruction. And for the Christians who are connected out of Judaism, especially this would have rung so true. A million people from their homeland have been murdered in the last decade. Not only that... That's war. And you might say, listen, war's tough, war's hard, bad things happen in war. You're right. Let's talk about the Capitoline Games. This is a picture of the Colosseum that sits in Rome today. This is what it looks like right now. You may notice in this photo that uh, there are three levels here to the Colosseum that all look very similar. This part's been torn down. Uh, but there's this weird fourth level up at the top that looks like it's out of sync with the rest of it. It's because it is. Because Domitian, who's the emperor that's ruling, I think at the time John's writing this letter, actually expanded the Colosseum with a fourth level so we could get another 10,000 people in the stadium. This thing at its height could hold 50,000 people. This was like going to a college or an NFL football game. You'd show up, there'd be food, there'd be drinks, there'd be a party. Not only that, just around the corner, Domitian built a second Colosseum, smaller, it's been torn down now, uh, a few of the ruins still exist, that held 30,000 people, 30, people within it, and he began a rebirth of the Olympic Games that were held in Greece. Uh, they called them the Capitoline Games, and they were held every four years. That's the reason we practice, have the Olympics every four years, is because of Domitian. And this describes what it looked like. You had day-long parties, and here's what the party was. You showed up at the stadium, you probably got pretty rowdy and drunk with your friends, and then the party began. And what it started with is they would bring wild animals from all over the world, elephants, lions, bears, all of the biggest animals you could imagine, and they would bring them out into the Colosseum and they would hunt them for public sport. And that was the warm-up, that was the, that was the uh, pre-show. Then you would hit the halftime show, and the halftime show, the midday games, was then they would bring criminals and condemned people from within the empire, and they would execute them publicly in all kinds of ridiculous ways. They would cover them in meat and blood and send hungry lions out to eat them. They would hang them by the dozens in the middle of the stadium. And that was the halftime show. Then the real show began, which was the gladiator combat when the greatest battles would happen in the Roman Empire and they would all stand around and cheer as they eventually killed each other with the sword. This was what life in the Roman Empire looked like. The, the nation that claimed to bring peace was ironically shedding blood at a faster pace than almost any empire that had ever lived. And John brings it to their attention and says, is the, is the peace that Rome offers really peace? 
does peace look like this? What are we doing? He continues, iceberg number three, the horse and the rider bring famine and economic insecurity. Uh, Continuing in verses five and six, when the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Okay, let's just be honest for a second. That's not what you, I'll talk about myself. That's not what I expected to come next. It's like conquest and war and then uh, an accountant comes out. Like that's not what I was expecting. And he starts talking about the price of grain. Like what in the world is going on? Part of the Pax Romana was our military might and military conquest allows economic prosperity to come to you. If you submit to our rule and you submit to our reign, we will bring you riches beyond your wildest dream. Here's the problem. During Domitian's reign, we had grain shortages and runaway inflation. This comes from an article that I came across called Prohibition uh, Roman Style, Domitian's Ban on Vineyards. If you remember a couple weeks ago, the Philadelphians really did not like Domitian because he banned their vineyards for which they were world famous and he turned them into grain fields, which failed. Why did he do that? Because his first order of business was to make grain production bountiful. Besides chronic conversion of grain fields to vineyards, natural disasters had caused additional disruptions to grain production. And the eruption of Mount Vesuvius caused the destruction of Pompeii, the city, yes, but it also damaged the fields that provided a massive amount of grain to the empire from the ash that it laid down. Thus, production of grain dropped even further and short grain production caused people to riot. There's unrest in the cities. There's war that's breaking out. There's rebellion happening in towns. Why? Because people can't afford basic food. Inflation is out of control. I'm sure you don't know anything about that. And here's the thing. Like, listen, the American economy has been hitching and tripping along, and we keep pointing at inflation. And, and we got to be honest, like, over the last three years, if you live in Phoenix, your inflation has been something in the neighborhood of 30-plus percent. That's a massive amount of inflation, and it has nothing. It can't even sniff what was going on in Rome at the time. I'm just going to jump back really quick so we can look at the numbers. Uh, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley. Now you think like, oh, this is just a poetic license that John's taking. No, we actually have historic record from this time. These are actual prices from the time that John is writing. And what this works out to be is that's enough food. Wheat was much more nutritious. Barley was the cheap filler. This was enough food to feed one person for uh, one man for one day. So essentially, as a working man, you would go work your entire day to earn enough grain to feed yourself. What was happening is the promise that if you just submit, the promise that if you just honor the emperor, the promise that if you just play games in the system that we have, we will provide wealth and we will provide exactly what you need. John says, are you kidding? They can't even feed us. People are starving and there's riots in the streets over it. And Domitian knows that it is weakening the empire. Iceberg number four. The horse and his rider bring death and Hades. 
When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse, or a dappled horse, or a spotted horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades, or Hell, was following close behind him. And they were given power over the fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. What John is saying is, let's assume for the sake of the argument that Rome actually can protect you from conquerors outside. And let's assume for the sake of the argument that Rome actually won't come after you. And let's assume just for the argument that this is a temporary bubble in our economy. Let me tell you what Rome can do nothing about because no one who's ever lived on the earth has ever been able to get out of it. Death. Death comes for everyone. Here's one of my favorite thinkers in American history, Benny Franks. That's what I like to call him. Uh, ben, Benjamin Franklin, he says famously, nothing is certain except death and taxes. That certainly would have applied in the Roman Empire. And one of the things that I think is so interesting is we know this statement. Maybe you've heard that quote before. But that quote actually follows him discussing his excitement and trepidation about finishing the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, our Constitution. And what he said is, I think we've done a good job. I think it's pretty good. I think it's going to hold up. But nothing is certain but death and taxes. How appropriate that the empire that now rules the earth, us, also falls into the same trap that every empire's ever fallen into. They cannot protect us from death itself. It doesn't matter if you're Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, whoever is at the top of that meaningless pile called richest guy on the planet, he's still going to die. And there's nothing he can do to get out of it. And with death comes judgment right behind. And it doesn't matter how loud his voice is or how much money he has or how many uh, millions he controls or how, many, how fast the delivery can get to your front door. They're still going to die and there's still going to be judgment. I would say that Benny Franks was probably reading Isaiah because Isaiah says something very similar in the Old Testament. Isaiah says, Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth, and into it will descend who? Their nobles and their masses with their brawlers and their revelers. So people will be brought low, everyone humbled, and the eyes of the arrogant humbled. The great equalizer for everyone, both the richest and the poorest, is death. Both the oldest and the youngest. Both with the most influence and those who have none. All of us are in the same boat. It doesn't matter what country we live in, what powers rule over us, what philosophies we hold on to. Death stands at the end of life. And judgment follows quickly behind. If you've been putting your trust in the empire to provide for you an ultimate reality that's good, what are they going to do to solve this problem? Nothing is the answer. Iceberg 5, the horse and his rider bring, bring persecution and martyrdom. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. When I read this, 
there's two things that I notice immediately. The first one is John is no longer talking about riders. He turns and he looks and he sees under the altar of God in heaven the blood of those who were killed for their faithful commitment to Jesus. What I also see is that God hears their cries. He hears their concern. And he is not, sorry about that, he is not going to ignore the fact that injustice has been put upon these people and justice will come. I think John is directly talking to those people who live in places, those Christians who live in places like Smyrna and Sardis and Laodicea, who if you remember when we talked about the churches, these are places that were probably very wealthy. They probably had a lot of influence. They probably did not have a lot of persecution happening in their city. And what John is saying is, do you think that if the Roman Empire is doing this to your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and in other towns nearby, they're killing them, they're martyring them, that someday they're not going to come after you too? If you think, hey, if we just play by their rules and we keep playing in the economic system and we keep submitting little bits to the emperor so we keep our heads down, everything will be fine. John says, no, it won't. You're a fool if you believe that's true. Their death was made into sport. Dressed in animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified. Other Christians were hung on poles and drenched in tar. And at night, executioners would light the human torches so that they could light up the streets as their screams resounded. And a sickening smell of burning flesh settled over Rome. This is recounting what was happening under the reign of Nero, the emperor who ruled probably 20 years before this. Domitian was doing some things similar. And the persecution and the martyrdom of Christians hadn't even reached its crescendo yet at the time that John's talking about this. John is saying to those people that are living in comfort within the rules of the empire that claims to have power over all of the universe, they will come for you too. And how can you sit silent as this happens to your brothers and sisters? How can you pretend that this isn't okay? How can you live comfortably in a place that treats God's children like this? Iceberg 6. The horse and his rider bring earthquakes and natural disaster. Revelation 12, uh, chapter 6, verse 12 at the beginning says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. It continues as it describes how terrifically horrible this earthquake was. If you remember, if you've been with us along the way, earthquakes are a major theme of what John talks about as destruction and judgment coming upon the earth. The question is why? Uh, There's two major reasons. Number one, Turkey lives in in a very unique place on the earth. There's three fault lines that all intersect right here in this place. One of the authors that I've been using for some of this content, Marty Solomon, he says this, there were major earthquakes recorded in 17, 19, 21, 24, 29, and 60 AD. And in particular, the earthquake in 60 rocked Sardis, one of the churches that receives this letter, so hard that its Acropolis, this is the mountain where the city sits on top, broke into three. And a third of the mountain fell back away from the city and the front part broke loose and fell 
forward, burying more than 300 acres of the residential portion of Sardis. And what we see today, if you go back to the sermon on the church, on the cities, the where the letters are written, there's a picture of the Acropolis. That's just one-third of the original that was sitting there before 60 AD. John says, maybe conquests they can hold off. Maybe they won't come for you. Maybe the economic insecurity will be temporary. Maybe they'll figure out some way to live forever. But they can't control the natural disasters that bring judgment on the earth. In fact, he says there's a response that comes as he, I think, is drawing to attention the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. When Jesus says this, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. You'll hear about conquest. But see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, because, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. These are the beginnings of the birth pangs. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted, even put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. I love that Jesus starts by saying, hey, you're going to hear rumors of wars, don't get worried. And then he ends with, and you're going to be persecuted and put to death, and they're going to hate you. But don't worry. That sounds worrying. (laughs) And I think if you're a Christian living in 85 AD in the Roman Empire, what you're seeing happen around you is worrying. Does God see what's going on? Is he concerned about us? Is he going to do anything about this? Is he going to take care of us? Because the seventh seal is coming, and I know how this works. Seven is the last one. He says, here's the response of the people that are enduring this. The terror of judgment shatters the illusion of control and power. Revelation 6, 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountain. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can withstand it? John says when these judgments come. It doesn't matter whether you're a slave or you're a free. Whether you're the king or you're the pauper. Judgment comes for everyone. And if you've ignored all of these signs that John is laying out at the false claims of control that the empire puts on you, then when judgment comes, the only hope you have is that the mountains themselves will cover you and hide you from his judgment. Spoiler alert, it's not going to work. Because no one can withstand when he comes to establish his kingdom. And now a dramatic interlude. I love this because we're hitting this moment where everyone is cowering. They're hiding in caves. They're saying, please let the mountains cover us. We cannot face God in his wrath. I'm terrified. And we're waiting for the seventh seal to open. And then he says, and just chill for a second. Let me show you what's going to happen next. And we head into the next chapter, chapter 7. The seventh seal, the final seal is delayed. And this is what he says, starting in the first verse of chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or tree. 
Those are, that's weird language, but if you imagine these angels are the ones that are allowing this judgment to come, and right before the seventh seal is opened, they go to the corners of the earth and they hold it back. And they say, hold on, hold on, hold on. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having a seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to, of the land of the sea, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until, until what? What are we waiting for? Until he puts a seal on the foreheads of the servant of our gods. And then I heard a number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Okay, so here, just in these four verses, we have two major themes that we need to address uh, because they come up uh, many times when people are talking about Revelation. The first one is the sealing on the foreheads. The second one is 144,000. What does that mean? We'll start with the seals first. The, the, the number one thing that we have to do is tie this moment to what is coming, the mark of the beast. Right? It's a preview for what's coming a few chapters down the road. They're going to talk about people who take the mark of the beast, 666. You don't have to even be around church to understand that people are nervous about what does that mean. I don't want to accidentally take this, you know, is it my debit card? You laugh, but I lived in the 90s in the church. Like, it was my debit card. <laughs> is it my phone? Because this thing, they can track me everywhere. Is it that chip? I heard Elon has a chip he wants to put in. These two things are tied together. We cannot talk about the seal, the mark of the beast, without talking about the sealing that's happening here. And I think what John is directly talking about is Deuteronomy chapter 11, which gives us a little bit of an anchor that allows us to not get totally out in the weeds on this deal. Here's what, here's what happens in Deuteronomy chapter 11. God is telling the Israelites, here's how you stay faithful to me. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Be careful, you'll be enticed to submit yourself to the empire. Be careful, you might be enticed to participate in worship of the Roman gods. Be careful, you might be enticed to honor the emperor as God. And then the Lord's anger will burn against you. And he will shut up the heavens so that it won't rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land that the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and in your minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Seal them to your foreheads. When God says, wait, don't finish judgment, don't bring us to the end of the story, I have work to do, there are people all across this land throughout all of history that are mine. And I'm going to take some time here to bring them in and to seal them and protect them for what's to come. And when we get to the mark of the beast, what we're going to see is that it's the flip side of this coin. Now we have to deal with 144,000. <laughs> I, uh, one of the things that I do every Thursday, Friday, Saturday is I go on a very long bike ride that's part of my sermon preparation, prayer, meditation, thinking about the sermon. And there's two uh, parks that I ride through, and every single Friday and Saturday, there's two groups of Jehovah's Witness uh, folks that are all dressed in their best, and they're sitting in chairs with some pamphlets, and uh, I ride by and give them a little high, and uh, they're there to talk to people about their faith. Although I suspect 
They're probably hoping nobody actually stops because you can get credit for doing it, but nobody really, I don't know. I don't want to judge. But Jehovah's Witness came out of a late 19th century cult based out of the number 144,000. They believe that this number of 144,000 is all that will be saved in the end, which makes me wonder why are you guys trying to get me on your dance card? Seems like you're full. Because I know a lot of people and I'm going to bring them and there's not going to be enough room for everybody. Now it's easy to laugh because that seems silly that we would say, no, no, all throughout human history, God's only got a hundred grand or so, a little change of people that are going to make it in. So if it's not that, what is it? What is this number? Why is this number here? I got two quotes for you. The first one is from Nancy Guthrie's book, which I already mentioned. Uh, She says, this is the true Israel, the church across the ages. Everyone is accounted for, and they are sealed for protection. These are all of the people that God is waiting in judgment so that they can come into the fold and be sealed as God's people protected for the end. G.K. Beale, who's one of the commentaries I've used a lot in this series, he says it this way, why speak of a specific number? If that's what he's trying to say, it's just everybody, why doesn't he just say everybody? Because Revelation's weird, but he doesn't say that. That, That's me inserting. Because Revelation uses numbers all the time. We talked about it last week. Here's what he says. Later on in the book, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles together form the foundation of the structure of the new Jerusalem, the new creation. What's going to come at the end? Multiplying 12 by 12 gives you 144. Representing the entire people of God throughout the ages, And then if you multiply that figure by 1,000, which we said is completeness of God's people, you end up with 144,000. Now, I will say that is one theory that I find fairly compelling as to what that number is supposed to mean and why it's given. There are others. Some people would say, oh no, God has a specifically set aside amount of uh, Jewish people of Jewish heritage who will come into the faith at the end, entirely possible. I think even if that's true, it's still included in what's being said here. This is representative of all of the people that God is patiently waiting with judgment to call in to the nations. And now we have another one of these great hear and see moments of Revelation. John hears the counting of the 144,000. The text goes through as it meticulously counts 12,000 people from each tribe. And then he says, after this I looked And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John hears them counting the 144,000, and when he looks, he doesn't see an exact 144,000. What he sees is people across all time, all people, all languages, all ethnic groups, all nations who are coming to faith in Jesus throughout all of history. Now, if you're standing in Gilbert in 2023, you go, oh yeah, that is what it looks like. I mean, there's people all over the world from all different places and all different languages, and they believe in Jesus. That's great. Yeah, it makes total sense. You have to remember the audacity of what John is claiming. At the time John wrote, writes this, estimates are that there are 7,500 Christians on the entire planet. And they all live, mostly, in 
Rome, Turkey, and a little bit in the, around Jerusalem and maybe some in Ethiopia. That's it. The whole planet has 7,500 Christians and they're being killed regularly. So when John says, hey, God's waiting in judgment because he's going to call people from all over the planet and there's going to be so many you can't even count them, this is the equivalent of God coming to Abraham who has an old wife who can't have children and saying, come out to the stars. Let me show you something here, Abraham. How many stars do you see? Can you count them? They're beyond number. They're beyond measure. And that is how many descendants you will have. John is directly calling to this idea. God has a countless amount of people from all over history who will come in faith to him. And as we stand here, we go, yeah, 2.3 billion people say they're Christians on the planet. I know, we can debate that. It's the largest, Christ, the largest religion on earth. Every nation has Christians in it. John's audacious claim that history and its judgment was going to pause and wait for this moment to come to fruition is here, folks. We're in it. Now, I want to be really careful. I'm not saying, so therefore, tomorrow, it all begins. Be on the lookout. The mark of the beast is coming your way. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that John's promise has come true. In the most unlikely way possible, he sounds like a madman claiming this. And yet when we look around, what we see is that Jesus, the slain lamb, has become the dominant force of faith throughout human history because he rules and he reigns. That's why. And we have to deal with the fact that we're in the waiting period. We're in the in-between because God is patient and God is kind, and he's waiting for us, his witnesses in the world, to tell more people about the good news that Jesus is the one who reigns for all time so that he can finish his project. What about those that we've lost? You have to imagine that in these churches, there is people who have lost friends, family, cousins, aunts, uncles have been killed, brothers, sisters, parents, children, what about them? The text says this. These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. I love this. Just pause for a second. So often the question about Revelation is, when is this tribulation coming? Because it sounds scary. I don't want to be a part of it. Do I get out before, somewhere in the middle, towards the end? When's that all going to happen? I'm telling you, it's only from the comfort of your seat in modern day America can you ask, when is tribulation coming? I heard last year that uh, Starbucks took the Christmas trees up. Is this the tribulation? Is it here? No. No. The tribulation was not something people were wondering when it was going to come. Because in John's day, these people were watching their family members murdered in the most violent and vile of ways. And they're asking, what about them? He says, these are them who came through the great tribulation. They've had their robes washed, made white in the blood of the Lamb. And they're before the throne of God, serving him day and night in his temple. And he sits on the throne, and he will shelter them with his presence. And they will never hunger, and they will never thirst. And the sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the promise to you and to me. 
God is being patient on our behalf so that we can be called into his family. And even if our faithfulness to Jesus costs us our very life, we are assured a place of honor close to Jesus where he cares for us personally, where he loves us, where he knows us, and he wipes tears from our eyes. And then we hit the cliffhanger at the end. Chapter 8, verse 1, the seventh seal. We've got to the end. He's called everyone. Everyone's been accounted for. What's going to happen? He opens the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for half an hour. End of sermon. Let's pray.